Hi diddly ho preparinos, this is Nat, the preparedness guy on Preparedness Works, the second best preparedness podcast in the world. Preparedness Works is part of the Readiness Lab, the place for podcasts, webinars, and training in the field of emergency and disaster services. Do you know what one of my least favorite emergencies is? A power outage. I know, it's not inherently life-threatening, it's just dang inconvenient. It doesn't seem like that should be my least favorite. Uh, you know, I'm sure I would consider a one where, you know, I was hurt or killed to be worse. But generally, power outages just disrupt everything. And unless you have an alternate uh, alternate method, you can't use the stove or the microwave. You can't charge your phone or watch TV or take a sh- hot shower. And if you're on a well um, and you need electricity to pump the water. You can't even take a cold shower. So when the power's out, it disrupts pretty much every aspect of our lives. On a regular day from the moment I turn on the light in the morning, almost everything is connected to electricity. I mean, before that, I usually check my phone before I even turn on the lights. Traffic lights, gas pumps, cell phone towers, and credit card readers all require electricity. It's part of every aspect of our lives. And with it, we can do amazing things like record this podcast. But without it, can we do much of anything? Now, we live in such a great time in history, but we're also pretty dependent and vulnerable. And I've talked about that before, um, about how our needs get disrupted. And the the more we rely on um, systems and technology that that make us capable of so much, the less we're able to do without them. So we end up being less capable in in an emergency. So I've been tossing around this idea in my mind uh, for a while, and it's that the higher we climb, the harder we fall. The more we rely on during uh, blue sky times, the less we can do for ourselves in an emergency. Now, blue sky just means like everything's nice. Um, It's, yeah, basically... Not an emergency, um, but the less, the more we rely on, then the less we can do for ourselves in an emergency. Not only that, but if there's like a, a a pendulum swinging from a timeline, the more advanced we get, uh, the farther back in time we swing when we lose everything we we rely on. It's kind of like it's spring loaded, and the further you get from whatever the the point on the timeline is the further you get from it the further back you fling when when it let when it lets go when there's a disruption now every year the cost of disasters in the nation and the world increases even if you adjust for inflation now the primary cause of this is the fact that we keep putting expensive things where they're going to get broken this is why we can't have nice things We have more beachfront houses, uh, more building projects in flood-prone areas, more human infrastructure overall in areas susceptible to to damage, which increases the number of people there. And um, and then what we build isn't built to high enough standards to withstand whatever hazards they're presented with. So we know the threat, and we know how to protect ourselves against it in many cases, but we still kind of just roll the dice, just take a gamble. I mean, to some extent, I get it. If we're going to increase the building quality on everything, it's going to cost a lot more. Uh, There's going to be a lot more issues with it, and maybe you just won't be able to build there at all. 
it's uh, you had a lot of legal issues um just a lot to think about and it's not like there's a magic button to fix it all too often the gamble is just kind of part of this underlying hope that it will never happen to me quote unquote and that's where it gets us if we act like it's not going to happen to us whatever it is we set ourselves up for failure when we inevitably face a disruption and this is just isn't just about how we build houses uh, we do it as individuals uh, by not planning or preparing we do it as a society by ignoring hazards that we face and last december thousands were left without power when there was an intentional attack on a power substation. And that's not the first time something like that has ever happened either. Uh, so it's not like it was completely unheard of um, or that we didn't know any better. Um, and just like most disruptions, it happens, we feel the impact, and then when things get back to normal, it doesn't seem so important. Now there's a uh, the black swan theory out there about some of these some some of the big disasters when a big disaster happens we after the fact can look back and connect the dots we say oh well we should have been able to predict it because look at this pattern of behavior or um, things that are happening that led up to it and an actual black swan is something that you wouldn't have predicted either by human nature or uh, just the circumstances you were in uh, but it seems like you could have after the fact uh, but there are lots of disasters that we actually can predict that we really should, that we know are going to happen. I mean, before the pandemic happened, it wasn't like a pandemic was had never happened. We all knew pandemics could happen and worse pandemics can, can happen. Uh, this power grid attack, we knew that it had happened, but there are a lot of barriers to keeping it from happening again. It's a very vulnerable infrastructure. How many times have um, have we had a greater military force that's defeated by a supposedly weaker military force? Uh, it's something that we constantly think will never happen, but it happens all the time throughout history. Uh, the greater force is turned back by someone they look down on. It happens in history. It's a common theme in movies and books. In Star Wars, the Empire's greatest killing machine ever, the Death Star, is taken down by a moisture farmer from Tatooine. Uh, so really powerful military forces versus a more uh, primitive force happens all the time. Now, good military leaders don't, under, uh, don't underestimate their enemy, uh, but human nature and psychology lends, a, um, lends to believing that we're untouchable. The same thing, that it will never happen to you, right? Never. This will never happen to me, even if you think about it. So if it's predictable, it's often dismissed. If it's predictable but not predicted, then we haven't even thought of it. But if it's completely unpredictable, then you just don't know. Now, I there's this fun game I like to play. I think it's fun. Uh, maybe it's not so fun, and it might be, get me put on a watch list. But it's called If I Were a Terrorist. My wife's not a fan, um, but sometimes it's like like with a power substation. I look at it and I'm like, well, if I were a terrorist, that's an easy target and um, would impact a lot of people. And again, power outages my least favorite because they impact everything. That's something that's very vulnerable, et cetera, et cetera. 
and obviously people have exploited it. Now, I am not a terrorist. I'm an emergency manager, and um, and I prepare individually. So I look at these things on how it would impact me and, and think, okay, how, how do I protect myself? So it's just a thought exercise on how I would identify how I, if I were a terrorist, would identify and exploit vulnerabilities in systems, facilities, or infrastructure. I used to do this with um, security assessments of, of buildings, too. If I were trying to break in, and it's something that's given me a different perspective in my time in the military, my time as an emergency manager, and in regular life. Now, it doesn't have to be a terrorist. You could try to figure out what might happen if a natural disaster, like a flood or a tornado, were to impact your home or your workplace or your community. And the purpose of these exercises, especially when you couple it with a type of a hazard assessment, is you identify how the hazard will impact your needs. Then you can figure out how to prepare to meet your needs. And I talk about that all the time. It's not about the hazard. It's about how it impacts your needs. And then your preparedness is focused on your needs. So doing something to make sure you're prepared is what changes this from a doomsday fantasy to a practical exercise. Just make sure that the hazards you consider are based in reality. If you live near the coast in the southeast United States or um, in the Gulf, you know that hurricanes are a fact of life. It doesn't take much imagination to dream up a scenario where a hurricane hits. You've probably experienced them. You can't prevent things like a hurricane. So you figure out how it will impact your needs or how your needs will be disrupted. You try to lessen that impact and figure out how to make sure your needs are met. Uh, that might involve evacuating before the hurricane hits and going somewhere where the systems are still in place. Or if you don't have a chance to evacuate, having the things you need where you're staying. We can't prevent everything, but sometimes we unfortunately make it easier for those threats or hazards to impact us. And that's sometimes by the choices we make or by what we are dependent on. So you can and should use modern conveniences. Now I have, I'm speaking on a microphone right now, on a computer. I have a phone. You're probably listening on a phone. Um, here's, for example, it's easier to start preparing it's easier to start preparing now than it ever has been, ever. Information is plentiful. We have access to more food. We have access to more food storage methods at more affordable prices than ever before. Well, not specifically right now, but generally things are accessible and affordable. Uh, but we lack the knowledge and skills to create or produce those things. And that's not always necessarily a bad thing. Um, like, I don't need to know how to grow every single plant in the world. I don't need to know how to fix everything. But if it's something that I need, you know, I don't need every type of fruit I can get at the grocery store, but I do need to be able to feed my family. So I figure out how I can feed my family if the grocery store's uh, food is depleted. Yeah, we are, we're separated from where our food comes from. I, mean, I can get rice that was grown in the Philippines. Uh, I don't know anything about growing rice myself uh, much. I've, I've seen um, farms in California growing rice. 
Uh, most farming now is industrial and it's consolidated. And that makes sense because it provides the most food for the most people. Uh, but it also, if that industry is disrupted, it, it disrupts the needs uh, or the, the food that supports the needs of many more people. And we can't, again, we can't realistically learn how to grow all of our food and make everything. So we have to have a balance of knowledge, skills, supplies. And each of us kind of needs to figure that out on, in our own life and our own circumstances. There's no single checklist out there. I wish I could give you a checklist that said, here are all the things that you need. Now, some people, you can work off a checklist, but then you have to really determine what does my family need and how do I need to adjust this? But there is no one-size-fits-all preparedness um, checklist for everything you need. And um, that's kind of what started started me on this um, journey of uh, sharing information is that idea that, I mean, there's a lot of preparedness information out there. And some people say, hey, this, this is going to make you prepared. But um, often it doesn't. Uh, you could download the checklist, you could do everything on it, and it still might not meet your needs. Or you could buy something. Like you could, if you buy a pre-made emergency kit, you can't expect that to sustain you. Um, especially if you haven't really taken it out, figured out what's in there, tested it. Now, it's better to do something than nothing. It's better to buy a, a year's worth of freeze-dried food, if you have a million dollars, than to have no food at all but you still ought to be able to produce some food. Uh, and you shouldn't just rely on on those things. You shouldn't just buy something because somebody says, oh, hey, the police have something. You know, that's not, that's not a good enough excuse. You have to couple it with a need. When you are writing an emergency plan in an organization, um, there's some research done that shows that organizations that have an emergency plan can be worse off than they would have been without one. And the reason is because they make a plan, check the box, set it on a shelf somewhere, and they you know, mentally check that off that they're prepared. They forget about training, uh, doing drills and exercises to validate the plans and make sure that as an organization, they're ready to act. A plan, an emergency kit, or food storage collecting dust doesn't necessarily make you better prepared. You have to make sure that you're acting to meet a need, not on a whim, and you have to follow through continuously. So that's all the groundwork of the topic. The higher we climb, the harder we fall. Now, I'm not necessarily talking about doomsday scenarios, although those are um, fun to think about as a thought exercise because they show a total disruption. However, uh, you know, it's that's why people like like zombies. Um, it's just kind of fun to think about. Um, any disaster is really a localized, temporary doomsday or post-apocalyptic scenario or the end of the world as you know it, even if it comes back to how it was before. A world after a natural disaster or a famine or war, all things that are happening right now in the, wor in the world, um, that's your world turned upside down. Life as you know it has ended, even if it's temporary and localized. And when your world is turned upside down and you have a need that is disrupted, you have to figure out how to meet that need. Now, in that moment, that's called response. Once the emergency has happened, you're not preparing anymore. Once you 
have a disruption to your need, you are responding. And that's a, a really important distinction because when there's a shortage of a, of a food item or toilet paper, going out and trying to buy that thing is not no longer preparing. The shortage is already there. Whether it's a, a substantial or actual sh- shortage of supply or it's based on, on fear and increased demand in a localized area. Once the impact happens, then it is a response. And you have to remember not to respond poorly. Uh, if your car breaks down, maybe you could figure it out. Maybe you need extra help. Now, this is a minor disruption often, but it can have cascading I- impacts because if your car doesn't work, maybe you can't get to your job, maybe you can't buy food, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but it's, a, it's an emergency a disaster is when the support system you have is no longer in place. So it's more than you can handle just on your own and with the extra extra help. Like if AAA is not available or your phone isn't working for you to call home or there's some other complicating factor, and obviously if there was an earthquake and now your, your car is stuck down a, a crack formed in the middle of the road, all of that together is, is a disaster because it exceeds your capacity to handle it when you rely on something and then it's disrupted you don't get to fall back on the thing it replaced because you didn't just replace it you made it obsolete now here's here's an example try to make sense of that if guns were somehow disrupted people wouldn't start carrying around bows and arrows hardly anyone knows how to use or make them a very small percentage of people Guns, of course, aren't going to magically stop working, but much of our technology has become more susceptible to disruption, not more resilient. If um, my cell phone stops working, I don't have a landline to fall back on. I mean, that's a good idea, but it's extra uh, cost that we had determined that even though landlines are are more resilient, it's not something we've decided to do. Um, So... Most people don't have a landline. Even if you have a landline, you probably have a wireless phone. And a, a wireless phone, once its battery dies, you don't have a phone either. So um, you have to have a, a hardwired landline phone to even take advantage of that that type of um, backup. My point is that when my cell phone goes out, I I don't get to take a step back to landline phones because those are largely obsolete or in my world I've, I've made them obsolete if uh if, you, if we were cavemen and some crazy natural disaster occurred as long as we survived what what would we have lost probably not a lot yeah, well, maybe we have some rudimentary tools at best so if we lost literally all our worldly possessions we could get back to that point in no time at all maybe it's a constant struggle you know every day is really a fight for survival at that stage of 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 life there are zero modern conveniences no way to store food there's also not any dependence on anyone else or any systems just dependence on things completely out of your control like nature if you can't find any animals because they're not there then that's you know nothing you're not going to eat right um so that that shows that you could be living in a state of complete survival already if you were a caveman and losing everything you have. You're not dependent on anything else. You just pick up 
right where you you left off. Here are some uh, some thoughts on the uh, from some books that I've read. Um, a couple of classic books are Robinson Crusoe and Swiss Family Robinson. Now these are both pretty similar stories. Somebody's on a boat in Robinson Crusoe. In Robinson Crusoe, there's Robinson, who's the single survivor, and Swiss Family Robinson. The family uh, survives together, and uh, they each. Each of the stories uh, talks about the characters surviving on an island without any extra support, except they have the, the tools and supplies that they can salvage from their boats, which becomes uh, exceptionally helpful. It's a convenient plot device. Um, it would be a lot harder to not have anything. And especially in the Swiss Family Robinson, they're on their way to Australia to, um, to colonize there, to help build a settlement and they have lots of supplies that they would build a settlement with and Robinson Crusoe has similar supplies as well these books were actually written almost a hundred years apart Robinson Crusoe was written in 1719 Swiss Family Robinson in 1812 that's, so that's almost a hundred years there's almost no difference in the technology um, there's very little practical advancement and almost a hundred years have passed now if we jump ahead to um, 1959 so we'll go about 150 years later then um, we look at alas babylon this is a book by pat frank it's a 1959 classic and i think it illustrates my point for this uh, this episode best of all because it was really a transitionary period, and we see it, uh, we see it quite a bit here. Uh, a lot of transition was happening, not just with technology, but socially. I mean, the, you have people living in an old way, people living in the new way, uh, and really just trying to figure out how they're going to do all this. Farming was often still done by hand. In the book, they just so happened to have the only mule in the county. Another con convenient plot device. But it, still, it wasn't a stretch of, of the imagination, given the time period and what actually was, was happening then. They were rapidly advancing in technology relative to where they had been, but it took some time for everyone to adopt the new technology. Air conditioning was a relatively new feature. Not everyone had it. Uh, pharmaceuticals, like uh, diabetes medication, existed, but were reliant on supply deliveries from out of town. There's a point in the book where they wondered about feeding babies after nuclear fallout, and the doctor determined that mother's milk would be the ultimate answer, to which one character says something like, well, that will be old-fashioned, won't it? <laughs> which is funny because in present times, in you know, the 2020s, hospitals are encouraging nursing first. And we have formula options as backups. We have things like pump and pumps and freezing milk, and um, there are people who who share their milk on, um, you know, La Leche, La Leche League or whatever uh, for, for other mothers who can't nurse uh, but give some of the options. So we have a lot of options now for things like that. I thought it was a great example in there because um, what they considered old-fashioned in 1959 is now in the 2020s what we actually, you know, we're their future, but it's what we do now. Um, so this transition of, of trying to figure out what's new and what's old and who knows in 50 years what things we will have abandoned to go back to a, a different way, something that we did did previously. 
they also um, had more people with skills and they could build things. There was a retired admiral uh, who's a character in the book. Again, this is Alas Babylon. So there's a retired admi- admiral who had been taught sailing when he was in the Naval Ac- Academy. You know, he thought it was silly, but he was glad he had it. Turned out to, to help them in the book. Skilled workers, uh, they could figure out plumbing, electrical generation, and more, which, again, fit the time. Like People were really skilled, a lot of people. But you had many people who were becoming more professional, working in offices. It was a less industrial time, more clerical work happening. Uh, a lot of people had fully embraced modern conveniences, but a lot of people still had practical, beneficial skills. And these skills, again, again, it's a book, so it's all things that they just so happened to need at the time. Uh, so it's convenient for the plot, but it made for a great story anyway. Um, it's actually one of my favorite books. And this was a time that they weren't really so separated from horses, but they didn't have that. Uh, a bike was mentioned, uh, but without cars, walking became their norm. They went back maybe 50 to 100 years in a lot of ways, further in some ways. And without cars, they couldn't immediately just start riding horses because they had made those obsolete. So they can't take a step back in advancement. They had to go further back because they had made horses and carriages obsolete. Cars replaced them. So we don't just take a step back. We go back to before the thing we made obsolete was, was in effect. Now, a more recent example of uh, from a, a, a book is One Second After. That's by William Forshen. Forshen. Every time I slaughter that name. Sorry, Bill. That was published in 2009. Now, this book was actually inspired partly by Alas Babylon. And it was written with a more modern threat, an electromagnetic pulse or an EMP. 2009 is recent enough for us uh, to be in our collective memory that we can understand the dependence on electricity at the time. And EMP is a total disruption. This one had a few more uh, convenient plot devices, like an old Edsel car that wasn't affected by the EMP, a Civil War reenactment group that just so happened to have some expertise in getting some of the things back up and running. Um, This book had almost all the prepper novel tropes, uh, which maybe I'll talk about sometime for all the prepper books, but I've read quite a, quite a few, uh, but it was a, it was a compelling enough story and it seems to resonate with a lot of people. Uh, this is probably the most prolific, uh, prepper or disaster fiction book out there. In this story, they had plenty of, uh, extra car parts. Everyone's cars stopped working but they had the know-how of a few good mechanics to get some older cars running. Uh, they don't have any resources from outside, so eventually fuel's going to dry up. Uh, they have to rely on what they have in their own community. So this disruption sent them further back than the one in the last Babylon, like that spring or the pendulum. The further you pull from the transitionary period, the further back it's going to go. Uh, so... Alas, Babylon had only happened 50 years earlier. Instead of going back 50 years, they went back probably you know, 300 years or something. I guess I could have done a little bit better math. Now, I 
look at our whole situation, we've got a dependence on a lot of things. And the, the idea that the higher we climb, the harder we fall um, should not deter us from climbing higher. Now we should, again, try to advance, try to get, um, try to figure out ways to make our lives more happy, healthy, productive. But when we become dependent on new systems, new technology, new items, if we are just focused on consuming rather than producing or being self-reliant, that's when we give up that, you know, the self-reliance, the ability to to be capable or resilient in an emergency. So we should definitely climb, but like a good climber, have good safety equipment. So if you're you're climbing on a mountain or doing rock climbing, then make sure you anchor yourself and preparedness can do that for you so that you don't snap back. Uh, even if it's a local temporary disaster, your entire world could be turned upside down at any time. Now, I'm not trying to be a fear monger. We all know disasters that are happening or have happened in the last few years. We've all been affected by them. So it's not like you need any convincing that life can be disrupted, even if it's local or temporary. What I want you to understand is that you have needs and that if you want to continue to bro- to have those needs, even during a disruption, then preparedness is the way to do it. So I encourage you all to continue to prepare, focusing on your needs, and remember that preparedness works. <laughs>